गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय ताय नमो नम सो प्रणाम यू अगेन गुड मॉर्निंग एंड फ्रॉम हियर गुड मॉर्निंग फ्रॉम बोगोता कोलंबिया Bogota is the, the capital city of Colombia, and then generally visit here once in a year. Coming to Bogota and then visiting Cali, and I'm going there on Monday. We have a retreat and on prayer there, and then a few other activities. And these days in Bogota, we had very nice series of meetings, celebrating not only Trinity and Under Three Odyssey, but also we celebrated. We are celebrating the whole principle of unconditional love. And that has been like the theme for this um, series of lectures that we are giving. Even yesterday, we were talking about the Sanyas Leela of Sri Chaitanya Dev. And we try to, I mean, I'm, I'm sharing a brief summary because you don't speak Spanish, basically. Uh, so we were talk, trying to connect the Sanyas of Mahaprabhu also with the principle of unconditional love and how... Uh, the, the the primary and secondary purposes for Mahaprabhu's coming uh, are tied with the with the primary and secondary purposes to Mahaprabhu's sannyas, and all this is tied to the principle of unconditional love. No? So we were unfolding that idea, and how the secondary purpose for Mahaprabhu's coming was establishing the Yuga Dharma, and for this he considered good to accept sannyas and bestow unconditional love on all of us. And in connection to the main purpose for Mahaprabhu's uh, descent is the tasting of Radhabhav, as you know. And also the sannyas of Mahaprabhu has to do with that as well. In, in, in his sannyas, Mahaprabhu is trying to renounce to all the things that the gopis, Sri Radha in particular, renounce on a daily basis for the sake of Krishna's love. So Krishna's Mahaprabhu is a sannyasi. He, he attempts his best to renounce to all the things that the, the gopis are doing that. And in that sense, not so much give unconditional love to them, but of course also, but we could say, to pay back to the unconditional love that Krishna is receiving from Sri Radha, who is the very ultimate form, not only of divine love, but of divine unconditional love, like it's being described in the in the very last verse of Shikshastakam, when Sri Radha is saying, whether Krishna embraces me or chastises me, is present, is absent, no matter what, no matter the condition, I love him unconditionally. Mm -hmm. So not only God gives unconditional love to us, but he also receives unconditional love. And we are to assist him in trying to pay back his abundant debt of love. So we, we concluded yesterday on last on that high note that our sadhana can be conceived as a way of trying to make to 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 help Mahaprabhu. Mm -hmm. To, for ourselves to become more surrendered devotees and from that place help Mahaprabhu pay back that debt of love. So anyhow, some thoughts regarding the topics of these days which were all uh, revolving around the principle of unconditional love. And today we will having a final session on that topic as well, a topic that we have shared often in English as well and that I personally consider very game-changing in terms of how do we orient our 
position in life, our connection with reality and our connection with ourselves, very empowering and self-validating in terms of understanding that from the get-go we are already lovable and that we don't need to uh, struggle in life or struggle in sadhana so Krishna likes us. But that's already happening from time without beginning. And what we are trying to do through sadhana is trying to celebrate that fact and in the context of that, give the embrace back, so to say. So anyhow, some thoughts regarding what we were sharing these last days here in Bogota. This is a country in Colombia with many devotees, uh, but also with many uh, affected devotees by some recent situations. Some of you may know uh, from some years ago, the main uh, guru in this country was unfortunately uh, indulging in some activities which were not the best, let's put it mildly like that. <laughs> and uh, the whole community has been deeply affected. So as you can imagine, there are practitioners who remain as devotees, uh, have connected with other Gaudiya Sanghas, some devotees who will li like to continue, but don't talk to me about Guru, just talk to me about Krishna. <laughs> some others who really felt the need to take um, full distance altogether and, and, and so many varieties in between. So, so yeah, trying to to embrace the, the commitment of relief work, as Srila Siddha Maharaj nicely put it, and trying to somehow or other give hope and give relief and give support and give uh, clarity in the, on the journey to, to the different sincere souls. And by doing that, of course, I pray that I may be able to to receive all that in the in the form that I needed in my particular stage of the journey. So that's what's going on these days here. And in two days, we are moving to Cali, where I'll, I'll be staying almost two weeks before traveling to the U.S. for a few months. So that's a brief introduction to what has been going on here. And I'm hoping that you have had a, a blissful, blessed celebration of Trinity Ananda Triodasi. And hopefully, as we always say, that these celebrations can continue overflowing and extending uh, so we can remain under the umbrella, under the shelter of this most merciful representation of the divine. Let's begin, if, in case you have any questions today for in our East Agosti, for our Tadatmi Sangha. I don't know if someone uh, has some questions, some comments, some topic you may like that we touch upon. So, Rasang is raising her hand. So, please. I cannot listen to you. I cannot listen to you. I just see your, your mouth moving, but not no sound. At least myself. I don't know the rest of you. I think nobody can listen. Yeah. Maybe you have to act, um, unmute yourself. No? I haven't learned sign language so good yet, so <laughs> that won't be a possible. So you, you see if you can fix that. And Krishna Kumar is raising her hand meanwhile, so we can address her her point, her question. Yes, Krishna Kumar. Pranams, everyone. Um, I just wanted to continue maybe the conversation about Lord Chaitanya and Lord Chaitanya's appearance day is coming up in about a month. And so I'm preparing for that event coming up. And so I was 
you know, there's a story that comes in that I've been thinking about in my mind about um, Shigur Hari, how when he's around in the vicinity of um, the Juggernaut Temple, and he's always begging for, you know, where is Krishna? Where is my Krishna? And the guards would, you know, say that, well, he's in the temple and, and motion that way. And Lord Chaitanya would go that way. And and so when he was around his home and in Navadweep, he would um, really plead with Gadadhar. It's like, where is my Lord Krishna? Where can I find him? And Gadadhar would say, well, he's within your heart, you know. And so this this was philosophically correct. But, you know, with the state of mind of Lord Chaitanya, he was in this you know, desperate state of mind, like where is Krishna? And, and at that point, he would like begin to tear at his heart, at his chest, hoping to be able to find the Lord in his heart. And Mother Sachi is witch witnessing this and she's concerned about, you know, the harm that might come to her son. And so she really um, pleaded with Gadadhar to um, protect him, to restrain him, to keep him from hurting himself and to always remain you know, by her son's side and protect him. And so I was really, I've been thinking a lot about Lord Chaitanya's vulnerability and my vulnerability and the community vulnerability. And, you know, it, it's kind of an opposite way to think of God as needing protection. So I, I always think of God protecting me. And um, so how is it that God as a protector has to be protected? And you know, how is that a part of my vulnerability or community's vulnerability in relationship to um, Lord Chaitanya is kind of what I've been meditating on. So I was hoping you could speak a few words about that. Well, since you have med meditating on that, I'm more interested in hearing which are the result of your own meditation, which of course you are sharing that now, but yeah, but yeah I, I also, I will look forward to that, but okay. I'll say, I'll say something about it. Thank you. That's very uh, interesting question and important point. And a few things come to mind. Um, to begin with, you make this connection between uh, Mahaprabhu needed protect needing protection from Gadadhar to protect Mahaprabhu from himself. In this case, we could say from the uh, intensity of his uh, loving separation which is again is a very extraordinary uh, case even in, in in the case of god we could say no i mean even among i mean god already is an extraordinary figure in comparison with everything else and among the faces of god we could say mahaprabhu is the most as silasen maharaj will say most volcanic personality the most extraordinary of the extraordinary so of course so only to a point we can make a full parallel between this most extraordinary form of the extraordinary and us. But we can, no? And there is chance to make some parallels. I appreciate your point of on, on, on that and us and as a community and how we have to uh, accompany together or protect each other, so to say, uh, in, in the context of vulnerability, because we need that. I mean, we need, we are all vulnerable, as we as we mentioned in the Radical Personalism book and series. It's not that we, we choose, we can choose to acknowledge our vulnerability or not. Mm -hmm. So we are walking vulnerability personified. <laughs> uh, 
and, and as a community, we are just a bunch of combined vulnerabilities. No? <laughs> and, and that's not to downplay who we are. On the contrary, you know, vulnerability properly addressed, conceived, embraced is, is glorious and is empowering, as we have tried to make the point so many times. The relationship between vulnerability and empowerment. Although, again, all this may sound paradoxical because in, in our dualistic mind, many times we, we just kind of see one disconnected from the other, separate from the other. Empowerment is one thing, vulnerability is another, instead of one taking to the other. So, so as a community of brothers and sisters, as a devotional alliance, as a gathering of hearts, whatever the, the the word you use, at least in our context to describe, for example, something like tadatmya, we want to promote vulnerability as a core value. I mean, it's one of the seven pillars of tadatmya. So one of the seven pillars means this whole thing is being sustained by vulnerability. So we need to be vulnerable, we need to express that, but also we need to accompany others who are expressing that, and we need to, uh, how to say, yeah, we, we need to, to support each other by promoting vulnerability in a healthy way, again, because it's both sides. You need to express your vulnerability, but also you need to to be there for, for the vulnerability of others and know what to do in that moment. Because, again, you have to know what to do. If we don't have a clue what to do with someone is being vulnerable, that can end up in something very traumatic. Although you have the best intentions in the world, it's such a, such a vulnerable, such a delicate moment when someone is, how to say, yeah, yesterday we were talking about that, not the day before yesterday, invoking the ideas we did in the book of Darshan, how actual darshan means to stand naked, so to say, before the sweet absolute and allowing ourselves to be completely seen for who we are uh, naked, mm -hmm. internally naked. So that's that can be terrifying unless there is a caring, supportive, loving eye gazing at us unconditionally and accepting us fully. So again, each of these things are not just nice words romantic concepts, but there are things to be uh, embodied viscerally. You know, we have to show each other these principles, basically. We have to gift each other in, in community, each of these concepts in motion, each of these principles in action. Mm -hmm. So so that's an important point since, since you connected somehow the idea of vulnerability in community life. I mean, that's community life. Basically, if there is no vulnerability in community life, we have to look for another word. Community is not the word in that case, no? because uh, community means we, we are sharing something with one another. And if there is no vulnerability, how much there is sharing, technically speaking. No? It's a sharing of hearts. It's a sharing of an ideal. We came for an ideal, hmm? ideally. Or maybe if we didn't come here for, for the ideal, we came for some other ulterior motives, hopefully in time we realized I should remain here for the ideal. I didn't come here for the ideal, I came for some other thing. <laughs> but now I'm being awakened to the fact that the ideal is everything. And the only way to remain in the ideal is 
by remaining fully transparent, fully vulnerable uh, in relation to the ideal, in relation to what I want to attain, to where I am now in connection to that, to which are the obstacles that get in the way. And I mean, that's an ongoing conversation. I'm being willing to listen and, and, and accompany everyone else in their particular journey as much as we can. Again, we, we have to also acknowledge our own capacities and we have also to, uh, how to say, not to neglect our own journey while accompanying others' journey. Now, of course, the two should be one, <laughs> but also it can happen that we can become over, overly concerned with maybe not so much accompanying each other, but mic micromanaging each other <laughs> as an evasive tool not to, not to do our journey. So everything should be properly balanced. Now we have to accompany each other, listen to each other, but also again, we have to pay attention to, to our own journey in, in a way that nobody else can do it. I mean, in certain ways, others can pay attention to our journey, others can nourish our journey, but in certain ways, there are certain aspects of our journey that it's up to us to do that. So also that has to be in place and not expect someone else to do that for me or not try myself to do that for others. Because if not, we are again promoting a culture of evasiveness, basically, where we are inviting people to do what they are not supposed to do or we are trying to do something that the other person should be doing and so on. So that's the one side. And on the other side, you mentioned this point of, okay, Mahaprabhu is God, if you will, and God is the protector. And, 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 and in fact, a very crucial aspect of Saranagati and surrender is to accept that we are being protected by God. But eventually also we see that God needs protection in certain way, in certain context. <laughs> So how to, to, to manage that? And again, this is again part of what belongs to the realm of paradox. We, we should get accustomed to, to coexist with all the things simultaneously. I hope that in, in the question, uh, and I, I trust that, that the question does not imply, Maharaj, tell me which of the two is actually what I should be doing. No. Which to accept, which to discard. No. Does God protect me? Or does he need protection? Both. <laughs> no, that's paradoxical, but paradox is that very thing which undermines uh, our dualistic thought. No? When most of us, at some, on some degree or another, inhabit dualistic thinking, no? and dualistic thinking do not how to say do not do good with paradoxes. <laughs> Paradoxical thinking takes us outside of our head and invites us to reconceive, recalibrate reality from another place. And actually, paradoxes are which holds the most, the most truth, so to say, you know, the most, uh, how to say, the most comprehensive and broad and deep truths. We will find them in, in the realm of paradox. If we just want truth without paradox, we will end up with a very shallow version of truth, of reality, of existence. It's a, it's a truth that doesn't beg for harmonizing, integrating, reconciling, coexisting with apparent opposites. Uh, it's a very like simplistic uh, level of reality, which is okay. We are not condemning that. It just that's not the ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. 
there are degrees to reality. And of course, we want the ultimate reality ultimately. <laughs> and that has a lot to do with paradox. So yes, paradoxically speaking, and God is paradox personified. That's why Krishna is no, I mean, many names of Krishna are like achintya, which means paradoxical, basically. You can say inconceivable, you can say paradoxical. Mm -hmm. He's not to be understood in the usual way you understand everything, which also gives you the hint that probably the way you understand everything, you are not understanding anything. <laughs> because in the beginning, it's okay. I can understand everything in this way, but God cannot be understood in that way. But then you realize, well, but if God is the very root of existence, and if God can only be understood through paradox, then probably everything else can be understood in the deepest way through paradox, through paradoxical thinking, through a mystical vision. You put the word you like, but that's the idea. No? We have to grow and mature in our practice to, to incorporate what in a previous stage will be felt as a, as a contradiction or as a conflict or as an irreconcilable uh, truth. No? So gradually, that's a way of measuring progress, so to say. <laughs> That's a way of, 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 of measuring, moving from the Kanishta uh, viewpoint to a Madhyam viewpoint, no? where everything starts to be more nuanced and accommodating, what to speak in the Uttam perspective. With, I mean, just God is oozing from every atom. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so Mahaprabhu, of course, when Mahaprabhu is, is, is described as in need of protection, like the Leela you described, Krishna Kumari, when for those who just connected, that was not in Puri, that was in Navadvip. Uh, Mahaprabhu was looking for Krishna, um, desperately looking for Krishna, looking for Krishna. Where is Krishna? He was in, in inhabiting Radhabhav in separation. And, and Panditri Gadadhar tells him, He's in your heart, and Krishna is in your heart, hmm? which is, of course, that's a whole different conversation. What's the meaning of that? Who is Gadadhar? Sri Radha and Gorlila and why she's saying that? <laughs> but basically, remember, no? Krishna is, Mahaprabhu is Krishna trying to be Radha, so to say, trying to experience her heart. And Gadadhar is Radha accompanying Krishna and trying to, to coach him and to guide him about how to gradually attain that experience. And so Gadadhar Sri Radha knows, no, Krishna is in your heart. No, he's totally trapped there. That's what Krishna says in the Bhagavatam. Sadabohidayam Mayam Sadunam Hridayam Tuham. Madanyati Najananti Naham Tebyumanal. I'm the heart of my devotees, and they are my heart. I do not know anyone apart from them, they do not know anyone apart from me. So there Krishna literally says, I am in the heart of my devotees and vice versa. So Gadadhar told Mahaprabhu that. Krishna is in your heart. And Mahaprabhu in Radhabhav starts to tear apart his chest, trying to look for Krishna. He took the instruction literally, <laughs> because that's literally true. <laughs> that's also a point. You know, that when Gadadhar says Krishna is in your heart, that's not just like a metaphor or like a symbolic representation. Actually, Krishna is not in your heart. But uh, thing like that, it will help you. It's, 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 it's healing. No, no, no. Krishna is in your heart. Especially in Mahaprabhu's heart. <laughs> so, so Krishna's there. So Mahaprabhu starts to look for him, literally. So, so with this also he's showing 
the intensity of longing and hankering that one can develop and that one should gradually develop if one wants to have that type of experience. And as we know, Sachi, Mahaprabhu's mother, sees that because Mahaprabhu starts to basically kill himself <laughs> in his search for Krishna. And, and she stops him and, 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 and or actually begs Gadadhar to, to calm him down and Gadadhar is able to do that. And then Sachi tells Gadadhar Pandit, please accompany my child always. Be his shadow, basically, which of course is the perfect arrangement by Yoga Maya. So to keep the divine couple next to each other for the rest of the Leela. <laughs> so that's a unique feature of Gaur Leela also, because in Krishna Leela, Radha and Krishna are together a good part of the day, but they cannot be together the whole of the day because that's not legal, so to say, according to the dharmic considerations of the town. But in Gaur Leela, that's a different issue. No? Radha has permission by Jashoda Devi herself in the form of Sachi, because the Lila is a different mood. So Gadadhar is appearing in this particular form and so on. So she has, Gadadhar has the full blessing of Sachi to be all day long with Mahaprabhu. So Radha and Krishna are 24 7 together in Gaur Lila. So that's a very interesting added feature that you find in Gaur Lila. So, yes, <clears throat> Mahaprabhu needs protection <clears throat> as well as Radha and Krishna need protection in Krishna Lila. Many times we, we mentioned this. As astonishing as this may sound, the idea that our service in eternity, in one way or another, if we project ourselves to serve in the intensity of Brajabhav in Vrindavan and attend to the necessities of service that arise out of love, one in one to put it simply, to boil it down, our daily services will be in the context of saving the life of God on a daily basis. Because Radha and Krishna will be dying in separation from each other. And each one of the gopis and gopas and manjaris and priyanarma sakas and so on, they have to be making different arrangements to give hope, to give support in the context of the lila, of course, and God never dies just in case. But <laughs> that's the arrangement, that's the, the, the orchestration in the world of lila. So when we are talking in terms of, there are different ways to talk about it. One is the top, we can talk in from terms of Tattva Bichar and Rasa Bichar. Mm -hmm. So Tattva Bichar from Bichar means perspective. So from the perspective of Tattva, from the perspective of truth, metaphysical truth, God is the protector, God is the shelter. We are to pray him to him for protection. And there are so many sections in the scriptures about this. That's the Tattva perspective. But then we have the, the Lila or the Rasa perspective in which God becomes more than God, if you will. No, he becomes Krishna. He becomes Mahaprabhu. And then he needs protection. He's still God, the, the supreme protector. But in the context and dynamics of Lila, the implications of love play themselves in such a way that God ends up being in need of his life being saved, so to say. No. Which again is astonishing. It's overwhelming. Don't try to think too much about it because... We will have some death today in the in the live streaming here. We don't want that. <laughs> you need protection. <laughs> so then we need protection again. <laughs> no, so it, of course the protection is very different. We could say also mm -hmm. there are different ways of speaking about protection. Mm -hmm. What one may say, okay, in certain stages of one's practice as a sadaka, 
you pray Krishna protection, please Krishna protect me so I don't deviate from my ideals, so I don't fall into this and this, uh, whatever, anarthas, whatever you may like to put it. So give me protection in that sense. No, give me protection because I don't have love. No, give me the protection that corresponds with my lack of prem. Let's put it like that. <laughs> but then is there is the protection that corresponds with the attainment of prem, which is of course of a altogether different uh, category. It belongs to another category altogether. So we, when we don't have love, we need a certain protection. When we do have love, we see we need another type of protection. And that's why it's very important to understand bhakti properly, because as many times we say uh, bhakti externally can be can seem the same, in the sense of the same as, as ordinary life, so to say. As a conditioned soul, protection is there. As a siddha, protection is there. But it's playing out from a very different place. So, so what the rest is well. Where do we find ourselves in our journey, and 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 which is the corresponding form of protection that we need to pray for in order to remain ourselves honest and sincere and vulnerable? Going back to the idea of vulnerability, we know that. Mahaprabhu is the most vulnerable face of the divine, and therefore he's the most volcanic face of the divine, and he needs protection, he needs assistance, he needs uh, support and hope in the context of that highest realm. But also the question is, am I qualified to do that? Well, I mean, to be honest, I I'm on the position that I can offer hope to God in the midst of the highest necessity. Probably not. So, so the conclusion is, okay, I, I will... I want to I want to identify with that highest necessity of service, but also I have to qualify myself for that. And so I'm sincere acknowledging where I am. And from where I am, I will invoke the corresponding protection. So I, eventually it all can ultimately converge in that form of protection. But again, where we are, sometimes we may need to pray to be ourselves protected from ourselves, not from our certain ulterior motives and prejudice and tendencies that go in directions that are not the healthiest in ways that we treat ourselves, in ways that we see ourselves. Sometimes we need protection, we need mercy, we need inspiration. So we are shown again clearly the path to take and, and, and how to proceed with uh, in alignment with reality. So, but yeah, in one way or another, vulnerability is there. That's the point. No, there is There has to always be a corresponding expression of vulnerability, no matter where we are in our journey, whether we are a novice, as a sadhaka, we are more advanced, we are super advanced, we are in the midst of lila. Uh, vulnerability is always there, as we also talked some some sessions ago. Tadatmya, the notion of tadatmya, the notion of empathy, uh, identification with the other. I mean, that's always there in one way or another, whether you are identifying. Being empathic with other people, empathic with your guru's wish, empathic with Krishna's will, Krishna being empathic with Radha, Radha being empathic with Krishna, as Mahaprabhu, and so on. So the same way, vulnerabilities, all, all these different attributes have their uh, multifaceted expressions in every single stage of the journey. Mm -hmm. So we should be open to 
to culture them with that uh, fluidity, so to say. It's not like, okay, this is, means being vulnerable. After that, that's over. No more vulnerability required. No, a new version of that required. And another, yet another new version of that required in Lila. And in Lila, it doesn't stop there. <laughs> when, one, when, when one access Lila officially, well, that's a whole beginning unto itself of a new wave after wave of newer layers of vulnerability and empathy and so on and so forth. Anyhow, that's what came. I hope that makes any sense, some sense at all. Uh, so thank you for your question, um, Krishna Kumari. I hope that helps. And we have someone else raising the hand, Madhav. So please welcome and you can unmute yourself. Krishna Maharaj, please, please accept my pronouns, Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Maharaj, I have a slight query regarding this uh, particular approach which you suggest in your lectures and your books, the radical approach. So, Maharaj, regarding this, we sometimes uh, in the Sanghas which we are there uh, at, the, at the present moment, so we start feeling left out in those, in the sense that we don't start belong, we don't, we don't start feeling that belongingness as we did in maybe in the previous times. Because we were trying to fit in 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 reality, but somehow we because of that fitting in, we created a sense of belongingness. So now when we start taking that new approach of little more radicalism, so then things start to shift a little bit. So how do we maintain this uh, proper sense of belongingness while going through that transformation within mm. ourselves? Mm. Okay, thank you. So how to keep this sense of belongingness when probably we realize that we are more into fitting in and into cheating ourselves that we are belonging <laughs> while trying to fit in without bad intention, probably just as some unconscious survival instinct or whatever. So I will I will go to Rupa Goswami's definition of, of what Sadhu sang about. And he over and over again emphasizes this idea, Sajatya, Swatavar, and Snigdasya, that we should hang out, so to say, <laughs> with people who are like-minded and affectionate and advanced or willing to advance, we could extend the meaning of that, and willing to grow. And that's our tribe. That's the place we can belong. And, and one, of the, one of the ways we can test whether I am belonging here or I'm fitting in is also look at yourself and look uh, how much you allow yourself to be yourself, whatever that means for you today in front of these people or whether you are calculating what to show in front of others, trying to somehow control their reaction, control their their view, the view that they have on you. Because again, and that this can be so subtle because we can quickly try to do a scan of that and say, okay, this is it, this is it. But we have to take some time to really observe that in time and go deeper. And, and probably in time we will still detect finer and finer layers of trying to fit in. It's not that there's only one way to fit in that I already recognized and that's over. So now I fully belong. Probably not. Probably you belong a little bit more and that's great and we should celebrate that. But that doesn't mean that I'm totally beyond fitting in. No, there are so many unconscious movements that, that, that still... We are. We may be driven by fear. We may be driven by, by a lack of self worth, in, in which I'm not. 
how to say, I don't feel brave enough as to show up as for who I am, basically, with courage, with vulnerability, in a very subtle way. So we have to continue in that process. And, and so it's in one sense, it's not, of course, in one sense, it depends on the other people in terms of how willing they are to accept me as I am and so on. But also it depends on me in terms of how much I am showing up, how much I am being honest and transparent or being willing to do that or how much I'm trying to control the experience, how much I am attached to to be seen in a certain way because if not, I, I, I'm terrified about being seen for who I am and the fear and the dread of being rejected and not belonging. So how much all these things are there? And again, the, the reflection may even may need to even continue further to the point of where is this coming from? As much as I can uh, trace it back. No, is it, what 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 can I remember from this lifetime <laughs> that may have triggered or created this particular uh, makeup in my in my perspective? No, is there something in my past that has happened and I have not addressed? I have not healed, I have not integrated, and now it's just becomes replicated and triggered whenever I find myself in a similar scenario, uh, because that can happen. That's, let's be honest. You know, sometimes we have unresolved trauma, and most of us have some trauma. I mean, if you tell me, Marsh, I don't have any single trauma in this lifetime, I just I, I just kick you off of the Zoom meeting now. <laughs> It's a way of putting it, of course. I won't do that. But but the point is that's that's not possible, basically. Something something general is there. Unless there is less super extraordinary avatar-like example, but I mean I'm not in that category just in case. So so we have to be open to that fact. You no, know? there may be layers that still need to be addressed and healed and named and framed from past situations that somehow still shape my present day experience. And we don't want to be prisoners of our past, basically, because that happens so much. I mean, today I was listening to something that was simple, but was very accurate, which is, which was kind of, okay, whatever we see generally in this life, we judge that according to our ex past experience with that. Even if I tell you, I don't know, look at that car. So what's a car for you? And immediately what's a car for you will be related to whatever you experienced with that car in the past. Now, your experiences with the car, driving it, being a co-driver. So you are just concluding about something regarding what you what happens in the past instead of thinking full in the present, considering the future prospect and potential of that thing. So many times we do that with other people, with ourselves, not only with a car, with a spoon, with objects. So many times we, we get prison, like imprisoned in this past pattern where everything is, all information comes from our past experience with that thing, with that person, with that situation. And we conclude, that's it, that's it. That, and, and we are never open for those things to be more, to be something more apart from our experience so far till today. So I don't know what I say that, but it's in connection to what I'm talking about somehow. So we should remain open. That's my point. Now we should not be, I was talking about past trauma. So so we should be open to address the past, but also because if we do not address it, it keeps replicating itself and we end up relating to the present 
and to the future prospect only in terms of what happened in the past, especially if it, has, it hasn't been addressed, it hasn't been solved. So the more we are able to detect that, the more we, we can be more present in the present moment and be brave enough to be ourselves and take the risk, so to say, of being who we are and, and embracing our future potential. Because if not, we still are a past creature, so to say. Everything is still like portrayed and depicted in terms of what happened before. And we do not allow ourselves any new experience. So real belonging has to promote that. Real belonging has to promote uh, prospect, no? a newness to everything, the possibility of change, the possibility that things can be and will be and need to be different from how they have been so far till today. Not because necessarily they were bad, just because the potential is that it, they can always be better and, and we should remain open to that potential. So, so yeah, try to find two things. Try to find people who, who are like-minded, who will appreciate these values, even if it's one. <laughs> uh, you don't need more than that because real belonging takes time. Real belonging takes interaction. It's in, inter, interactive. So you cannot just engage in real belonging with 5,000 people. I have 5,000 friends in Facebook, but with all respect with some of them, I mean, I don't experience belonging with everyone. I mean, I don't even know who they are, many of them. <laughs> so, so I use the word friends because Facebook used that word, but I wouldn't use the word friend there. No. I have people who subscribe to my account or something, but friends, a friend is something different. <laughs> friend is someone I can belong to and vice versa. So, so yeah, try to... To, to pray and to look for that tribe, even if it's a one-person tribe, and then also inspect your own willingness to belong. Because again, one may be already close to people in relation to whom we can potentially belong, but how much we are willing to belong, how much there are still some obstacles that get in the way uh, <clears throat> of belonging. Not many times, as I remember, I think Brené Brown said that once, I like that, you say many times these how questions, how to belong, how to whatever, fill the gap with whatever, how to do this, how to attain that. Many times the best way to reply to those how questions is uh, become aware of the obstacles that get in the way to the how you want to attain, so to say. How to belong. Hey, which are the obstacles that get in the way of your belonging today? You know, like try to do that inventory. And, and, and try to work on that with determination, with constancy, with patience, with self-compassion, uh, and so on and so forth. And, 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 and also, it begins at home, and that I will say that will attract corresponding environment in relation to which you can belong. But again, you, we can only belong to people. You cannot belong to an institution. You can be officially affiliated with an institution, but that's not belonging. You just can belong to one heart, can belong to another heart. It's a heart affair. Belonging is a heart to heart affair, not heart to institution affair. That's just a signature or some name in a paper. And I'm not condemning that. It's just that's another thing. Uh, just, to, just to make the point clear that 
it's very probable that most of us won't feel that we belong to a big institution or to a huge gathering because there are so many people and so many things happening at the same time. <laughs> and we feel I cannot belong to all that simultaneously. I, I can just, I feel the need to belong in certain specific directions. And for that, we need to find specific people, specific circumstances. Everything has to be more and more specified. That's basically Krishna consciousness. That's the path of specificity. So I hope that helps, Madhav. Uh, thanks for your question. Yes, sir, um, I certainly did. Thank, thank you so much. And I, and, I, and I saw you send me a message. I received your, your message. So, But give me a few days to reply. I'm a little busy here in Colombia, but it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> okay. So we have Sueta Dweep, Radhika, raising her hand, and then we go to Rasangi. Please, you can unmute yourselves. Sueta Dweep, Radhika. Thank you, Maharaj. So uh, my question is related to uh, the previous uh, previous Ishta Goshis, actually. Okay. So we, we talked about the standard of uh, chanting 16 rounds. So I want to understand the significance of uh, contemplating on that. Like you were saying how uh, the original number given was 64. And also we see that uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself was encouraging devotees to chant like one lakh names, which is like close to 60, I think. 64. 64. Okay. So I'm trying to understand, like, uh, so does it not, I mean, uh, just un uh, looking at that, should we not just aim to chant more to get close to that number and see that, uh, like, okay, 16 is very low compared to that. So, you know, so like, what's the significance of contemplating on the standard? Mm, okay. So I will say that I, the standard is something to be established between guru and disciple. That, that's my my take. No, that's what I personally feel is ideal. No, it's something to be established by guru and disciple. Even recently, I was talking with a friend of mine, and he told me that when he received initiation from his guru, actually his guru didn't even ask him for a number, but told him, fix a number that you can sustain. Chant a number that is sustainable for you. And he didn't even ask, tell me the number. It's, it, he left that to him. And he told me that that created a very powerful impact on him in terms of responsibility. Like, like my guru is just in one sense trusting me so much, trusting my sincerity, that I will establish a number that is challenging enough, so to say, <laughs> but also sustainable enough for me to grow into my practice of chanting in this case. Uh, and he hasn't even asked me the number. He just gave that instruction, trusted me, and it's up to me to keep that bow with me internally. It's not about to show off to anyone, even to my guru. <laughs> now, Gurudev, I'm chanting this number now. I mean, I, I, like, I'm not interested in how many rounds you will chant. I'm interested that you're chanting in a way that is challenging enough and sustainable enough for you, and you are being honest about that. That's in my interest. So I appreciated that. Again, I'm not saying everyone should do in that same way. I'm just sharing examples of how one same thing can be done differently. Uh, and, and it may work better for one and for other differently. Again, we have to be open to this diversity. So that, that will be my main point. No, 
course, in Mahaprabhu, there's one instance in Chaitanya Bhagavat where Mahaprabhu goes to a devotee and, and, and he says that unless someone is a Lakshashwar, he won't eat in the house of that devotee. And Lakshashwar means someone who chants a lak, which is 64 rounds. So sometimes that has been taken by some devotees to mean you have to chant 64 because if not, I mean, I have heard these things. Because if not, your offerings of boga are not accepted by Mahaprabhu, because he said that in this quote. But again, he said that in one verse to one devotee in his house, it was a specific statement. And a point was made, and I, I, I don't, do not intend to dismiss the point altogether, but also not to over-absolutize that, because, I don't know, Haridas Thakur was the Namacharya. He didn't chant one lakh, he chanted three. <laughs> Uh, or, or as sometimes I say, Rupa and Sanat and Goswamis, some of our Acharya will say, maybe they didn't even finish one round per day because they chanted half a sea level and passed out. So, <laughs> you follow my point. There are so many ways to, to address the thing. And, and, and Prabhupada started with 64, then adjusted to 16. As I say before, also he was sensitive enough to address specific cases and fix other numbers that were sustainable enough for that person. So as I mentioned, I think it was last Istagosti, I personally feel that the more healthy approach is to make these standards uh, more fluid, more, more personalized, more radically personal. <laughs> and not only radically personal to one person, but to that person across the different stages that person will go through. Because again, Someone may be chanting 16 rounds, as it happened with many Prabhupada disciples, and then some of the Vaishnavis got pregnant and had a baby and found, I don't have time to do this, or I don't have the energy to do this. I may do it, but I'm completely exhausted, and it will be just running to get to the number, but my mind is somewhere else, my body's collapsed. So is that healthy? Is it healthy to chant from that place and to develop some scars of or chanting from that place? <laughs> I don't think so. And Prabhupada himself adjusted the standard accordingly to those particular circumstances. So again, it's it's fluid. Sometimes I see the Buddhist chanting when there is Harikata also. Someone is giving Harikata and some other members of the audience are chanting their rounds, which for me is, is not so... I mean, in general terms, unless you are a completely advanced person who your tongue cannot avoid chanting and it's something uncontrollable. That's exception to the rule case. But in general, you cannot chant and hear or listen to Harikata at the same time. You're neglecting one thing or the other or both. <laughs> but I know that some of them will chant during the classes because they have committed themselves to a number that for them to achieve the number, they have to be chanting at every moment during class, doing so many things, and they end up chanting inattentively and developing that impression, that how to say, that habit of chanting from that place. So for me, that's not so so healthy, so to say, because I can, and I know devotees who chant 64, but from those 64, maybe they chant a few rounds attentively and the rest is just during class, driving, doing this and that, because they have to get to the lack. <laughs> but it's not the lack, it's the quality. Mm -hmm. in, in that lack, there is a lot of lacking, no? <laughs> to make a play of words. There can be lack in the lack. No? Good luck.
with that. <laughs> no? or, or sometimes I heard a devotee saying, try to chant one maha mantra attentively. And the devotee was like, one round attentively? No, no, one maha mantra, fully present, fully attentive. Let's see if you can do it. And he, and he said, that's not so easy, right? And the devotee was, yeah, that's not so easy. <laughs> So we want to achieve that level of presence, of quality. So sometimes quantity can be adjusted for the sake of quality. And sometimes quantity will be expanded because of the presence of quality. But again, at the end of the day, it's absolutely, in my estimation, it has to be something to be established on a personal specified, again, level relationship between guru and disciple, and if or, or if for some reason the guru is not present, one has to establish that with with your with oneself. And again, that's that's the challenge. No? You have to be totally sincere and honest about establishing a standard in which you are not over demanding and burning out, but in which you are not being lazy and evasive. So that's the that's that's sort of the actual challenge. That's even more challenging than chanting sixty four rounds probably. <laughs> and knowing when to adjust to that, when knowing when to chant less or more depending circumstances, that requires a daily vigilance on, on where I am today. So that's way more challenging, at least for me, than just fix a number and keep it that for your whole life. Well, sometimes during that whole life, you may need to chant less or more. <laughs> uh, but sometimes we just fix the number and, and stop being present with ourselves, stop being vigilant and stop being introspective and just become concerned with with the number, with counting, not with chanting. So, so yeah, I, I will personally, again, it's, it's, a, it's a way of re-emphasizing what I shared last week. Uh, again, it's my personal view. I'm not here trying to universalize my opinion on this or anything. But that's how I personally see it will be healthy for the person who is embracing that. I'm trying to talk all this from the perspective of what will this do to the person who embraces one standard or the other. I can tell you, I've seen so many people get uh, neurotic about standards and get discouraged or get, again, like running after a number, getting concerned with externals, basically. And, and, and totally dismissing what should actually be happening internally, which is what the holy name, the chanting, and anything we are doing is about. It's a moment of real presence. And like when Parikshit Maharaj said to Sukadev Goswami, I have one week to leave. Is that enough to attain perfection? And Sukadev Goswami chuckled, like saying, just one moment of full presence, that's more than enough. So the same applies with the chanting. And of course, one can say, yes, but we need to chant a lot to reach that moment. Yes, but chanting properly to reach that moment. It's not that if I chant inattentively Nama Parat for five decades, I will get to one instant a full, pure presence and attain perfection. That doesn't work like that. So again, it requires introspection. We have to ask ourselves, where I am in my chanting? Where is my mind, my consciousness? Where is my motivation for chanting? Why I'm chanting? Is the proper motivation? It is not what we expect to attain. I'm concentrated. I'm not concentrated. How I can adjust the rest of my day to be more absorbed 
so many things that we have to be asking ourselves in a healthy way, <laughs> not like an inquisition or something, in a healthy way. If we want, if we want, again, first we have to do all this voluntarily, no doubt of fear, no doubt of peer pressure, social fit fitting in or whatever. So we can give ourselves fully, voluntarily, sincerely to whatever we may be doing, be it chanting, being cleaning the bathroom, being peeling potatoes, whatever. Krishna wants our full presence there. That's the main thing. In one sense, the activity itself is secondary. In one sense. Because you can be chanting and again, doing Nama Parat one after another, and creating some scar for further and further now para. <laughs> Although externally, 64, the luck. Mm. So, yeah. I don't know. I hope that helps. <laughs> uh, Maharaj, we also do hear um, that if you chant more, like, you know, the ch chanting itself actually improves the quality or something like that. Is that not the case? Again, I repeat myself, chant more, chant more of what? Chant more of Nama Parat? That would improve the quality. So we have to first understand what's chanting. Before saying chant more, chant less, first we have to understand Nam Tattva. What's the name? What What's in the name? What's the way to chant? Which are the apparats, the offense not to engage in? Which are the unhealthy ways to engage the chant, address the chanting. If you are chanting properly, of course, the more you chant, the more the quality is improving because there is already quality to begin with. But if we chant, if we become accustomed to chanting just to reach a number, just because of social position, just because of peer pressure, I have to finish this number because if not, they will criticize me. Or we chant completely this inattentive while not making an effort to be attentive. The chant to chant more of that won't increase the quality. I think that's common sense. I mean, we have to be, be besides the things we hear in our social circles, <laughs> we have to apply common sense. So it doesn't make sense that if I chant, I don't know, I get a custom one devotee once told me that. Sorry, I'm giving an extreme example, but he told me, Maharaj, I, I always chanted all my rounds watching TV. That was chanting for me. I will watch TV and chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Ha, 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 wow, let's change the channel and eat popcorn, maybe with left hand, who knows? <laughs> I mean, that won't take to better quality of your chanting. I can warranty you that. <laughs> because that's not chanting. Externally, it seems so. Externally, the lips are moving. That's what Bhaktivinoda Thakur say. Namaskar, Namahar, Namar Bahir Hai. The, the lips are moving. The letters are sounding. But that's not necessarily Srinam. Those are two different things. The external sound of the letters, H-A-R-E, that's one thing. The name of Krishna, it's a different thing. What's the difference? Your internal disposition. That's why Rupa Goswami says, Atasri Krishna Namadi Nababad Grahiyam Indriyai Srivan Mukhehi Jeevado Swayamevashpuratida he says, Atasri Krishna Nama Adi. He says, the name of Krishna and the form and qualities and lila and so on, Adi, etc. The name of Krishna, Nama Vid Grahyam Indriya, cannot be uh, pronounced with one senses. 
No, you cannot touch the name of Krishna with your tongue or your senses. So it sounds like, so what I'm doing while chanting. But then the, the verse further clarifies, Seva on mukhehi jiva But when your inner attitude is one of seva, then through those very senses that cannot touch Krishna, through those senses Krishna will manifest, will reveal himself through the tongue, especially through the tongue, beginning with the tongue, it says. So that's a verse that may seem contradictory. It first says, with your senses you cannot contact Krishna, but with your, your senses, through your senses, Krishna will reveal to you when you have this attitude of service. <coughs> so it's all about attitude. It's all about intention. It's all about what's going on internally. It's all about what nobody else sees <laughs> except for Krishna in your heart. <laughs> so, yeah. The more we chant with the right attitude, the more we will chant. That's totally fine. But first we have to make sure that whatever number we are chanting is promoting a better quality of chanting, is promoting more chanting, more real chanting. Whatever quantity and quality I'm giving today is promoting more of that as well in the future. We have to make sure that's going on. Because if I establish an un unreal number, I will chance 128 rounds because I, I read the life of Haridas Thakur and got inspired. Okay. Hopefully you can keep that, but also keep in mind that you are not Haridas Thakur. So probably you won't be able to sustain that as Haridas Thakur is doing that. So maybe you may need to adjust that number so you can give more quality of presence to the chanting instead of being paranoid about reaching the number and so on. So th that's mainly my point. Again, I'm not against chanting more. I'm not against chanting three lakhs, one lakh. I'm just again, I I'm just in favor of doing that from a realistic place. So we don't have to cheat ourselves thinking I'm chanting 64 rounds or therefore at the end of this life, I'm going to Golok or even I'm chanting 16 rounds without caring for the quality just because of the number. Krishna doesn't care for numbers. <laughs> Krishna cares for the inner presentation of our hearts. That's bhajan. Bhajan is not a number. It's an inner presentation of our hearts with utmost sincerity. If that's there, probably numbers and everything else will increase. But first, that has to be there. And that takes time and energy and sincerity. And we have to be willing to invest ourselves in that. Okay. What else? I hope that helps. Bhaktiras is raising her hand. Rasangi makes her hand disappear. Maharaj, I have to go to an appointment. Oh, okay. Next okay. time. Okay. But I love this Sangha. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I, I also love that you are here today with us. So thank you so much. And we'll begin with your question next Saturday. Thank you so much. Make sure the microphone is working so we can go yeah, to your, I love, your question I love first. technology when it works. My computer yeah. sometimes does that. So I came on my phone. Okay. Next time thank we'll you. try again. Thank you so much. Arrivo. Jai. Arrivo. So, Bhaktirasa. Maharaj, a quick follow-up question to the last to the last discussion is, um, is it possible also that by chanting Trinam in different moods, then that will take us to different forms of Krishna also? If we chant out of duty, you know, just sheer duty, then that could really create a different samskara for ourselves. 
as far mm. as your relationship with Krishna. Yeah, that's completely the case. <laughs> and that's what Krishna says. As someone worships me, I reciprocate accordingly. Basically, that's that's the same principle. If you chant in a certain way, I I, I manifest myself in a way corresponding to the mood of your worship. So, and that's not a problem. Not that I'm not saying that for us to get scared, just for us to know how how life works. I mean, if if we approach God with a certain place and invite Him to a certain relationship, okay, He will agree with that. He will reciprocate. He's He's open. His love has to move freely. So Krishna is not imposing Himself on us. You have to love me like this. No? That's why, and again. Uh, in my opinion, bhakti is not inherent. And of course, I don't think it's only my opinion, but that's in Shastra. But my point with this is, if bhakti will be inherent, it means that we don't have a choice in how to relate to Krishna. But it's already determined. You are in Sakya Rasa, you're in Madhurya Rasa, that's how you have to approach me. But love, ideally, love is a totally voluntary choice that we have to make. So it, for me personally, it's counterintuitive to think Okay, love is voluntary, but I have no choice whatsoever into how I would like to love Krishna because that's already predetermined in my DNA, so to say. So the idea that bhakti is not inherent speaks of there's that freedom that I can choose to worship and approach God in different in whatever way I want, and Krishna will adopt a corresponding form accordingly. There are many verses in Shastra that says that even to that point, that Krishna adopts a form to fulfill the desires of his devotees. So whatever the desire of one devotee is, while chanting or while practicing, there is a corresponding, unique, unrepeatable form of God <laughs> that corresponds with that. So Krishna has unlimited forms as much as there are devotees with different approaches to him. Not only is Krishna in Vrindavan, Mathura, and Dwarka, there is a unique Krishna for each unique type of bhakti in each unique devotee. So as you mentioned, Bhaktaras, if I try and chant, for example, with a sense of duty or with extreme sense of awe and reverence, well, that doesn't correspond with Krishna Vrindavan. <laughs> no, so so we will be taken to the corresponding department, so to say. No, so, so, so that's why that's for example what uh, Bishwanath Chakravarti Thakur says in the Rag in Ragavarma Chandrika. He says, if you worship Krishna. He gives one example only. If you worship Krishna in Madhurya Rasa, but at the same time, you do so while remaining considerably attached to rules and regulations, you will end up being a queen in Dwarka. When there is a romantic relationship with God, but still with some sense of, of, of awe and reverence, different from Vrindavan. No? So, so basically that example makes the point of what you are mentioning. No? We can have even an idea, like we want to serve Krishna in, in, in Madhurya Rasa. Okay, but there are different types of Madhurya Rasa. And according to how you approach the ideal of Madhurya Rasa and romantic love, there will be corresponding sections in transcendence for you to, to enter. So, again, not to be afraid, just for us to be aware in the way I, I correspond to that, I will attain a corresponding... Again, what says the Bhagavad Gita, another verse... Whatever the bhav 
you have when leaving this body, you attain that bhav in the next birth. Whatever state of consciousness you are in, and this extends to our relationship with God, you will attain a corresponding destiny according to that. Again, it's kind of common sense, but sometimes that's pretty uncommon. But <laughs> that's why sometimes I emphasize, sometimes they would say, Guru Shastra and Sadhu, Guru Shastra and Sadhu. I say, let's add a fourth one to the triad. Guru Shastra Sadhu, common sense. Well, let's filter whatever the Shastra says, whatever Sri Guru says, whatever the Sadhu say with common sense. Because sometimes it becomes absolutely uncommon to have common sense. And we need to bring that back. So, so yeah, it's, it's all about, uh, that's our responsibility. Again, we are invited to be ourselves and to make our choice into how we want to, to relate to God. That's his love. That's his generosity. That's the freedom he's given to us. You know? So, so we, we, we decide. And I know that sometimes we are terrified about being responsible and deciding <laughs> for something. But it's important that we know, yeah, I'm given the chance of deciding and my decisions will somehow craft my 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 future. So, and of course, in that case, we want to be as, as informed, as, as better informed as possible. So our decisions can be the best. If we make a bad turn, we can learn from that and continue our journey. So no need to freak out, <laughs> but yeah. Krishna wants us to be uh, free people, so to say, that freely choose to love him in a certain way for eternity. So we have to make peace with that idea, basically. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. So Maheshwar Prabhu is raising his hand. Please, you can yeah, unmute yourself. Namaste Maharaj. Um, Thank you for that. That's really informative. I came with like a question about, you know, my Guru Dave often said um, not to chant Harinam, but to serve Harinam. Um, I think you've explained this <laughs> in detail that you need to have presence to be able to serve. So to be in service, you need to actually be present and fully there. Um, my next, so to move that on, it's like, how do you create that mood of service? Um, <laughs> And is there stuff we can use to increase the quality of our Harinam when we're chanting? You know, do we meditate on a verse? You know, like the idea of contemplative prayer, do we, can we pick a verse and meditate on that while we're chanting and things like that? Can we incorporate other stuff into our practice mm. uh, rather than just picking up the bead bag and, med and moving the beads on our hands, you know, as you say, like not actually focused properly. Mm, yeah. I don't Thank know if you. that explains myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, of course, I totally agree with your Gurudev said. It's not about, of course, we can say chanting and we have no problem with the word, but the actual inner spirit is serving. And that's why we have this expression, Nam Seva. Hmm? Nam Seva. And Seva means to give pleasure to the object of our affection. Because also we can say to serve the name, but what's our idea of serving? So we have to, to, to clarify every possible layer of potential confusion. So Nam Seva, no? Nam is non different from Krishna. So I, I think something that works a lot, helps a lot is first to be properly educated on Nam Tattva. Again, what's the name? 
and, and that takes time again to re-educate in all the tattvas. Nam tattva, prem tattva, sanam bhakti tattva, gore tattva, krishna tattva, jiva tattva, bhakti tattva, shiva tattva, and so on. <laughs> as much as we can, it's important that we have some some bandha, some orientation to what we are doing. You know? To chant is like the action, I'm chanting. But whatever we do, we do from a certain orientation. There is some knowledge that has taken us to do that particular action. So what's that knowledge? Because if the knowledge is not accurate, the way we engage in the action won't be accurate. What to speak of the fruit of that action? The, the desired result won't come. So it, it, that's why it's so important to be properly educated and have proper sambanda. What's the name of Krishna? It's non different from him. In which sense is non different from him? In which sense is different from him? As Rupa Goswami says, more the name is more generous than the name. And how to chant, how to address that reality. What's the chanting about? Again, I'm having a, 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 a date, so to say, with the divine. No, and he's fully present in the name. How God is not different from his name, the non-dual nature of God in connection to his name, form, and so on how Mahaprabhu emphasized the chanting, and so on. So many things to gradually incorporate. So when we sit to chant properly, officially, all those things are there kind of informing our practice. And gradually we will grow in this. So I will say, yeah, it's important to, to study, to know, to be educated about what we are doing, basically. <laughs> Again, it's common sense. Like some, the other day I was talking with the devotee. I'm, I'm sorry if I will make some of you feel embarrassed by this. But I, will, I was asking him, okay, we what, what do we practice? And say, we practice bhakti. Okay, so how do, we def how do you define bhakti according to our tradition? What's the official definition of bhakti in our tradition? And he didn't know. So I basically, and probably you don't know either, I don't know. <laughs> but there is one definition that Rupa Goswami gives of what's bhakti. So I, I told him, basically, if you don't know what's bhakti, how you are practicing bhakti, and you don't know what you are practicing, or maybe you, you can give a definition, but how much that definition matches the, what we are supposed to do according to our tradition. You follow my point? No? So, or, or like if we start to talk about love and love and love, but we never define what's love. So everyone may have their own idea of that same word, and maybe all of them are different. Some of them may be different, but true. Some others may be inaccurate. So we have to be willing to expose our potential misunderstandings of things. <laughs> and, and that happens when you are properly educated. You, know, you, you learn, you listen, you realize, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I have the wrong idea about that. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, now I get it. Okay, now this makes sense. So when you address the practice, you have a clear perspective of what you're about to do. What's this all about? So that's one thing, more like kind of a preliminary thing in terms of the chanting, because it's not just what to do when I'm sitting, also what to do when I'm not sitting chanting. <laughs> how, how do I conduct myself in my life, my lifestyle? Because all that will affect what happens where I'm sitting. Also, when I, what happens where I'm sitting will affect what happens when I'm standing up. So the two are like interrelated. So we have to have a lifestyle that is somehow coherent with our life of, of, of serving the name. So yeah, serving the name. The name is a person. It's not just a name. It's not just a sound. The ultimate is a person. 
gradually the name itself will reveal himself as such with form, with qualities, with loving interaction, Nama, Rupa, Guna, Lila. So serving the name is another way of saying, developing my loving relationship with Krishna. Mm -hmm. Developing my loving relationship with Krishna. And as I like to say, if I want to love someone, probably one good place to begin is to listen to that person. It doesn't make sense if I told you, I love you, but but I never listen to you. And it's like, what what's what type of love is that? So probably a good way to show love to someone is by paying attention to that person. So in this case, the recommendation is you are chanting the name. Try to listen to the name. Try to hear the name. Try to be present again. Try to... I was talking the other day. We were pre-recording one podcast and I'm restarting soon, the Free Radical podcast with one devotee called Kul Pradip. And he was talking, he's a chaplain, and he was talking about this expression of a ministry of presence. That's how how his work is described, a ministry of presence. I, li I like a lot that expression because it's not limited to being a chaplain, of course. No, So so while chanting, we have to, to, to offer a ministry of presence. <laughs> we have to learn the art of being present and paying attention and listening to the name, what the name is trying to tell me, not so much only me telling the name, what should be happening or what I should be feeling, because if not... Our voice becomes the prominent one. We are chanting, but internally we are so much about, I need this and I want this and Krishna. We are just projecting all our stuff on the name. And we are not listening. We are not allowing Krishna to talk to us. We are talking too much ourselves. <laughs> That's like Krishna in the Gita, no? In the, in the first chapter of the Gita, it's mostly Arjuna's dissertation to Krishna rather than the opposite. It's just Arjuna telling why not to fight, why not to engage in the battle, blah, 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 blah. And Krishna is not saying a word because he realizes he's not he's not caring for me. He's not listening. He's not present. So allow him to do that, to say all that he has to say, to reach that point that he realizes I'm nowhere after saying all this. <laughs> and then I can say something. And then Krishna starts to speak and Bhagavad Gita begins a little bit more officially. So, yeah. I will say chanting has a lot to do with presence, cultivating presence. That's not easy, especially in the times we live with everything so in, they took so fast, so many distractions, social media bombarding in every direction. So one has to gradually culture some lifestyle which is conducive for attention, <laughs> for focusing, for absorption. Because ultimately that's what Krishna asked, manmana, give me your mind, give me your attention, give me your presence. So we have to see how we can order our lives so gradually we can offer that presence, we can listen to Krishna, we can be there with the name. And from that foundation, we can offer some seva. Again, seva is to, to offer something for the pleasure of the object of my affection. So to be present, to make an effort to be present and to really listen, that's in itself seva. That's in itself seva. Seva is not just doing stuff. Because sometimes we, again, misread services, doing something physically. I have to clean the pots and I have to collect money and I have to distribute books and I have to worship it. But if I'm just sitting, being silent, trying to make a sincere effort to be present, that's seva. That's favorable. Anukul, seva. Krishna is pleased with that. Um, and I will be hearing. And the more I hear, I will receive some, some further seva. <laughs> no? 
the name will engage me further, Seb, and I will, and, and and the dialogue will will evolve from that point. But we have to begin with being present and listening. If we just start the whole thing by being asked the main character who have the the most important things to say, that's still pretty like subjective. No, I, I am the center. So chanting is is the opposite of that. So sometimes it can help before starting to chant. Apart from the education I mentioned. I mean, and I'm sure things, some things may work more for one than for other. But yeah, don't try to, don't start just chanting mechanically, just put your hands into the beat bag, you know, like, chum, chum, sh -sh 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 -sh. No, but take some time, take some time to enter into that sacred space internally of presence and silence and prayer. Sanatan Goswami, in his own way, will say in Hari Bhakti Vilas, I don't recall exactly, but he says kind of, Try to, before chanting, do 45 minutes of pranayam. <laughs> and he said that 500 years ago when the mind of people was way more relaxed and stopped. He said that from in India in a village setting. Before chanting, probably to calm your mind and be present, do 45 minutes of pranayam. Now for us in the West, we'll be like three hours of pranayam minimum. And again, it's not practical. I'm not saying you do that, but I'm saying... There is some sense there of before starting the whole thing, try to enter into the space, try to settle, try to allow your mind to, to be in sync with, with what's about to happen. Hmm? If it helps, you read some quotes, you read some book, you write, you journal. Again, whatever works better for, for each of you. There's no one unique formula, but we need to be to offer our presence and our listening to the for the pleasure of Bhagavan. Again, that's the beginning of love. That's a good way to put it. The beginning of love is being present and listening. That's an aspect of your loving project with Krishna as the name. It's not separate from that. It begins there, being present and listening. The rest will follow. Krishna will talk to you through the name. You will be present, you will be listening, and so on and so forth. Relationship will proceed from that. So I hope that helps. Yes, thank um, you. Thank you. Really. Okay, thank you. There are a few comments here. Let's see. Okay, Bhaktarasa is sharing a link with the, of a Japa retreat we made two years ago for those who would like to join. Uh, Karuneshwari says she has been listening to that. Anantam Chitra says Gary Chapman speaks about five love languages where acts of service is just one of the love languages. Uh, guess, guess, it says there's one sign I cannot see. Guess this can be used to connect with Krishna. Yes, yes, of course. Of course. So it's important, again, that we expand our notion of, yeah, what service and, and how, how many ways we can serve him, even if externally, bodily, we are just in one place, <laughs> but internally. This, what makes something seva or not doesn't have anything to do with what's going on externally. That's why when Rupa Goswami gives this official definition of bhakti, Uttam Bhakti, he says, apart from many things, he says, Anukul Yena Krishnanusilanam Bhakti Ruttama. So he used the word Anukul, which means favorable. So if it's the important thing is what's your inner mood? Because externally, you can do something that pleases Krishna, but with an unfavorable mood. Kamsa was thinking about Krishna 24 hours a day but with an unfavorable mood. He wants to kill Krishna. So that's not considered bhakti. 
Bhutan Bhakti. And Yashoda was chasing Krishna with a stick, which is not normally considered one of the Angas of Bhakti. And the list of Angas of Bhakti doesn't say chase Krishna with a stick and try to beat him. <laughs> but she was doing that with such but maternal love that that's considered favorable Uttam Bhakti. So at the end of the day, it boils down to the inner attitude. Okay. So Anantam Chitra is raising her hand. Maybe we will finish with that one because it's already one hour and 30 minutes and I have to do a few things here. But we have time for one more question. And also, sorry, but I'm seeing here in the chat, oh, uh, Trivikram probably sent a question like an hour ago through the chat, but I was not attentive to what was what, going on in the chat. So let's go to Anutam Chitra's question live. And, and, and if possible, Trivikram Prabhu, you can make the question live next time with your voice, or if it's not possible, send me the question to my email or something so I remember to, to address that the next time. Thank you. Yes. Raj, actually, this is not a question. It was just in line with what okay. you were speaking about uh, Nam Seva. Yeah. So where you had mentioned that it's service is not ju just about doing something. There are so many other elements involved. So when I shared this Gary Chapman's five love languages, so he uh, has love language like um, quality time. Uh, which sort of makes sense in connection with holy names. So it's like when I'm connecting with the Lord uh, in his form as holy name, it's like I'm also spending quality time with him where hearing and being attentive is a part of uh, investing that uh, quality time. And then there is words of affirmation. And then there is gift giving, acts of service and physical touch. So I was thinking that five love languages can be, can also translate into five love languages of bhakti or uh, in, in connection with Krishna that way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And yes, of course, uh, Rupa Goswami, his own way, when he speaks about 64 angas of bhakti, he's, that's his way of saying 64 languages of love. <laughs> Like there, if you have love, that will express itself in so many ways, you know, in everything you do, technically speaking. Or if you want to have love, every every one of your actions will be transmitting that. It's not that only this will be love. This will you no. Know, if you sincerely want that, intention is there. What to speak? If you have that, whether if you are in silence, whether if you are embracing someone, whether you are doing whatever you are doing, that will be part of the equation of the love equation. So. So yeah, thank you. Okay, so so since that was not a question and didn't require that much elaboration, I'll go to Trivikram Prabhu's question and we'll conclude there. Although it's a very nice question that requires uh, more elaboration, but what to do? He says, how does vulnerability, that was a little bit connected with the first question, vulnerability pretty lakshanam or showing symptoms of, of love, as Rupa Goswami names them, how does vulnerability and pretty action work in a healthy way in context with social media, global community? Seems to be many considerations. Yes, there are. <laughs> it may take lots of time. Um, I will say in brief, to begin with, vulnerability is in itself pretty lakshanam, because Rupa Goswami says in Upadeshambrita, that's verse number four, um, pretty lakshanam, one of the ways to show affection with each other is to reveal our minds 
in trust and confidence, which means vulnerability. You, know, you cannot reveal your mind if you are not being vulnerable. So you can, in other words, if revealing your mind is a symptom of affection, and if revealing your mind requires vulnerability, then vulnerability is a symptom of affection. So we can be vulnerable, since we are talking about languages of love, <laughs> being vulnerable to one another is a way of showing our love for the other person. And of course, going back to the chanting, that's all about vulnerability. When I, we are chanting, we are just burying our, lay our soul naked in front of Bhagavan, trying not to hide, trying to be ourselves, being vulnerable, and that's connected with showing affection, but also that can be extended to our relationships with one another. And in the context with social media, well, social media, let's be honest, doesn't allow for that flow 100%. I mean, of course, we can do something about it, but <laughs> I think this is the, the, the best we can do, like in this moment, trying to see one another through a camera and trying to be attentive and loving and caring, but through other dynamics like texts and threads and short messages, and sometimes so much is lost in, in that, so much vulnerabilities is impossible there. I mean, social media are not have not been created to foster vulnerability among human beings. Let's put it like that. <laughs> That's not the intention, not the original intention. Of course, we can try to use that for that purpose as much as we can, but also we have to acknowledge the limits of that and never, I don't know, conclude, ah, oh, some meeting is the same as meeting with each other in person. I wouldn't say that. Of course, we cannot meet with each other in person every single weekend for obvious reasons, so we resort to technology for that, but also this shouldn't replace all that happens in a in a face-to-face -face meeting with so much more information has to be processed, even in terms of gestures and movements and presence and feelings and emotions. And we need to remain accustomed to, to dealing with that level of information and processing that because if everything gets like reductionistic to the point of just a few letters and a few emojis, we are not even able to name to find the, the, the way of expressing the emotion, just you put the emoji. <laughs> uh, that's very uh, shallow in, 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 connection, in contrast with the potential we can have. Uh, so again, I have nothing against social media, against global community as it is. We are somehow trying to build that in one way or another. Tadatmya is a, a devotional alliance which members from different places. Uh, it's in itself a global community. It's mostly going on on social media. <laughs> so I have nothing against that. But we are using all those platforms to hopefully foster uh, more localized, specified, individual interactions uh, as much as we can, like local involvement, not only among ourselves, but with whomever is next to you there, so to say, your house, your family, your society, your group, your temple, how to extend and apply all these principles of vulnerability uh, and predilection locally. So those are a few thoughts. Of course, the question requires a greater treatment, but as I told you, I'm a little bit running out of time today. And we have already almost two hours, so I think there's a good moment to pause and ruminate further for a few days till we see ourselves again next Saturday. So thank you so much to, to all of you for being there, making an effort according to your local timings and local uh, activities and engagements and commitments 
to to join us and to somehow keep uh, keep in touch with each other at least once in a week in this way and and, and, and nourishing the the principles and the concept of of, of sangha and tadatmya and empathy and growing in bhakti in the best possible way. So we hope to see you next Saturday, same time, this time from Kali. Sriman Mahaprabhu ki jai. Sri Harinam Sankirtan ki jai. Sri Sri Gaur Nityananda ki jai. Sri Sri Gaur Gadadar ju ki jai. Sri Sri Radha Madan Mohan ki jai. Radha Govinda Dev ki jai. Radha Gopinath ju ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Brinda ki jai. Gaur Pramananda Hari Hari Bhur. Vancha Kalpataru Vishcha Kripa Sindhu Pyaibacha. Patita Anam Pavane Pyo Vaishnava Bhyanamon.